Hello and welcome to another episode of Conversations with Shonda. We hope you all are doing well, given the circumstances. Like many of you, our team is working remotely at the moment and continuing to bring fresh episodes through virtual conferencing. We hope you enjoy this episode and stay safe, practicing social distancing together. Thank you so much for agreeing to have this conversation with me today. You know, if we can just jump in and, you know, if you could each, maybe uh, Natalie, we'll start with you, um, just providing um, an introduction to who you are and how you got involved in in health mm-hmm. um, and, and just whatever you want to share to just get our listeners to know who you are. Okay, great. Um, So I'm Natalie Davis. I live in Washington, D.C. with my husband and four kids who are all being schooled downstairs, so you may hear them. I uh, studied uh, throughout my bachelor's degree and master's degree, really studied sociology and how one's social environment impacts one's view of their self. And at a time, I was really interested in anorexia and bulimia And then that's when food deserts were being discussed at a more national level and came to Washington, D.C., where my husband was studying to be a immigration rights attorney and was trying to find a job. Um, I had a headhunter look at my background and say, oh, you're you're interested in anorexia and bulimia. And uh, that is healthcare. I was like, oh, I never thought about it as healthcare. And so... I started, I got a job and started doing the nonprofit circuit here in Washington, D.C., and had um, the opportunity to work for the Obama administration starting in 2010 when the Affordable Care Act passed, and thought I was going to be a a smart policy person and realized there are a lot of really smart policy people here in Washington. And what I loved was going out and talking to people and to providers and advocates and understanding how the policies of the Affordable Care Act and the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, how those actually live in real life and how we can do better to serve people by making stronger policy and operationalizing that policy in a way that that really was uh, a way that people could take advantage of the good work that the federal government did and does. When uh, healthcare.gov went down, the team that I was on we had the opportunity to work with Andy Slavitt, who came and rescued, along with a lot of other people, rescued the website, and then he became the administrator for the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. I um, had the benefit to be his right hand and had so much fun going around the country with him and talking to people. We set up a listening tour and really, again, got to do what I loved doing, which was going and talking to people and hearing about their lives and how healthcare and policy can make their lives better, which brought us to start United States of Care, the organization that I helped co-found and now am the director for public engagement, where, again, I get to go out and talk to people about how they experience healthcare and really am bringing that to not only make smarter healthcare policy, but really change the narrative on healthcare from something that is super politicized and thought of as something people can get political wins on instead of the issue when you talk to real people or talk to people about healthcare, it's a, it's, it's a personal issue, it's a family issue, it's a community issue. And so 
changing the narrative and making sure that we are talking about the right issues, talking about people's needs, and really bringing that into the policymaking process is, is where United States of Care and the organization that, that I am help, helping to lead is um, really focused. And Dr. Lisa, what about you? What is your, what is your background? And if you could uh, share a little bit about yourself with us. Sure, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. I'm looking forward to this conversation. I'm an infectious disease physician who trained in public health at the CDC. I was an uh, epidemic intelligence service officer. A lot of people may not know about EIS officers. These are the medical detectives who investigate outbreaks. So I'm sure right about, right about now, they are fanned out across the globe, um, quietly doing their work. Um, and after my time at CDC, which was about 10 years, I moved to Washington, D.C., which is where I am now. And here I've had a variety of roles in the health sector, uh, from academic, uh, being an academic researcher, you know, clinician, um, and I call myself a community health activist because I love to be out in the community, on the ground, listening to people, hearing what's going on. And uh, I was also the chief medical officer at Washington, D.C.'s Medicaid program. And after all these experiences, was most drawn to understanding what's happening around healthcare with people and how they're understanding health and healthcare. And so I've ventured off into uh, health literacy and I've started my own company called Grapevine Health. And the company is called Grapevine Health because there is an unrecognized wisdom around health and healthcare in the community that's uh, being communicated uh, through people. The problem is sometimes the information is incorrect. And I believe people like me need to be inserted in these conversations to improve health literacy, but also to share health experiences so people don't feel um, so alone in their healthcare journey because it can be very daunting and, and scary. Um, so my, my company um, is really, uh, we're really in the beginning stages, but this pandemic, I think was tailor-made for someone like me with my background um, in public health and infectious diseases, but my interest in uh, addressing health literacy because there's been so much misinformation rampant on the internet, especially, but also in community about uh, this virus and what it's doing uh, to people. So I'm ramping up efforts around addressing uh, misinformation related to coronavirus. And hopefully uh, that will position me to move things forward, including my video series called Dr. Lisa on the Street, which has <laughs> been like a bit it. of a challenge right now. I'm, I'm still out in the community, some doing service, but it's not the same as Dr. Lisa on the Street, which is walking up to people and asking them to talk to me about a health issue. Um, so I'm sure that will continue, but for now, uh, we'll be focusing mostly on online um, health information and addressing misinformation as best we can on social media. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Natalie, how long has United States of Care been um, operational? Yeah, we're a new organization. We were founded or we launched in 2018. So we've got a couple of years under our belt, but even with that, have a 
great track record that has um, really taken off, especially during COVID, but a great track record of working at the federal and state levels with um, Mm -hmm. politicians of all party um, and uh, at the same time out talking to to individuals and people about their needs um, and their experiences and doing that from more of an ethnographic uh, point of view, just like Lisa said, is going out and talking to people. We've had community conversations in San Diego and Dallas and Philly and and phone calls and Skypes and individual conversations across the country. And and so really are, you know, just in these two years, trying trying to meld these worlds of policymaking and and understanding people's experiences in order to drive that kind of path of of new way of thinking about policy. Mm-hmm. I mean, in both both of your cases, the work that you're doing has kind of evolved recently in the middle of of hopefully something that we never see again in our lifetime. How is this moment evolving your work? Um, is it reinforcing yeah. what you already knew? Is it bringing surprises? Is it presenting new opportunities? Or yeah, um, all, yes to all of that. We are we are finding when we talk to people that this is not a political issue. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be a political issue. It shouldn't be about political wins. When you talk to people, it's about, they are concerned on these unknown times. They're concerned about themselves and their families. And they are concerned about frontline healthcare workers and they're concerned about going back to work. And so when we think, when we, sent a letter to Congress two days ago with what they should be focused on. We centered our recommendations on what they should be working on and what people we hear what people want and need. And so we really have ramped up um, our recommendations to state lawmakers. We've sent out state uh, checklists for what they can be doing to get their their state ready and, and their and, and in a better place where their citizens and others are um, safe, and we've been sending letters to Congress and working with um, the administration to to really make sure that what's put forward is centered on what people need and not necessarily what industry, you know, what we think of as big big lobbyists who would be lobbying for certain things. We're we're really there to to bring the amplify the needs and voices of people, and so. To answer more straightforward, to answer your question, yes, we have seen so much more opportunity to put forward our point of view on this is not about political wins. It's about people's needs. And here's some smart policy that can meet those needs. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Lisa, like, how has it evolved your work and what are, what are you noticing? I'm noticing um, that the more things change, the more they stay the same. I think a lot of the narratives we're seeing in the media um, don't apply to some of the communities I'm working with and walking amongst. Uh, for example, the homeless population largely feel the messages, the prevention messages and public health messages don't apply to them. Um, I interviewed um, a director of one of our, um, our homeless uh, service agencies, and she said these messages telling people to stay home keep your hands clean and socially isolate are very difficult for someone who's homeless to implement. First of all, they don't have a home um, and the places where they might find a water throughout the day are now closed because we take for granted that businesses are, will be open. And when they're open, uh, a lot of homeless folks rely on them being open to use bathrooms and um, obtain water and things like that. 
And then finally, this population is already socially isolated. And so now we're asking them to isolate even more. And so the concern is, and the things we're not talking about are what will be some of the mental health um, impacts of what we're doing, this epidemic and how it's going to affect long-term and even in the short-term, how it's affecting um, vulnerable populations. So the reason I say um, the, the more things change, the more they stay the same is because none of these disparities surprise those of us who've been working with these populations. And so um, I think as we evolve our conversations about how to address health disparities, we really have to be intentional in thinking about what the concrete solutions should be. I, I really hope that we won't simply have convenings and create task forces and, re and create more reports, um, but that we will actually uh, create some actionable change. So those are the things I'm thinking about right now. Yeah. So I'm just going to ask questions. I know we're, we're on this Zoom and um, hopefully we'll be able to um, just go for it. But there's a couple of things, especially uh, Dr. Lisa, when you were talking about just the misinformation that's out there mm -hmm. and um, which existed before. Right. And as soon as you said it, I could hear my grandmother in my head <laughs> giving me her solutions to my ailments. Um, and, um, you know, I thought I had an ear infection a couple of weeks ago and I'm like, oh, I just need a little sweet oil and a cotton, you know, and some cotton. I'll pop it in my ear. I'll be just fine. <laughs> and, um, you know, we have those things that get passed on in community. And can you talk about, so you have both kind of the, the grapevine of health, right? Which is like misinformation or ways that we manage things in our communities that um, could be improved if we actually had a primary care doctor and went there. And then we have misinformation that's being put out in the public. Can you talk about, um, I don't, I, you know, damage is a really strong word, but the damage of the misinformation that's out there and, and, and how and what that's done to, um, in light of a situation that we're in now. Yeah, the, the, the misinformation is harmful. And the reason I'm so passionate about addressing it is, is because I believe misinformation thrives because there aren't enough credible people speaking truth about these issues at the same time or trying to dispel the myths. And so if you don't have enough people dispelling the myths, the, the misinformation can take off like wildfire. And, and you know, there's a a saying, I think it was Mark Twain who said, um, bad news travels halfway around the world while the truth is still putting its pants on or putting its shoes on or something like that. I think this is very, uh, this is very appropriate for what's happening with misinformation. One of the most harmful things, I believe, um, in early days of this pandemic when it hit the United States is that there was a joke going around that black people were immune to coronavirus and we and we wouldn't be affected and that joke actually turned into lore so now um, we are looking at the effects of that people still don't believe that this is an issue um, not necessarily just for black people but that maybe it's not real at all and i think by the media mostly displaying um, people of authority or people who are visible like actors and athletes having um, the virus, uh, people 
went to sleep. Um, the, the other thing um, that's circulating a lot is about prevention and treatments and cures. And I think this is harmful because people believe that some of these things uh, will protect them from coronavirus and maybe they won't practice social distancing or maybe they won't uh, practice good hand and face hygiene. So an example of this is, um, and I still get questions about um, this information that floated early related to coronavirus hanging out in the throat. And if you drink hot water, it washes the virus in the stomach and then you won't get COVID. And I had to explain, and I actually created a little video about this, um, showing people the difference between the airway and the esophagus or the food tube and why even though coronavirus might be hanging out in the back of the throat for a minute, that drinking hot water alone is not going to prevent you from getting COVID because it's an airway or it, it's related to breathing and the lungs. So I think I could go on and on about all the misinformation, but those are just two examples um, of how information gets on the grapevine, gets spread around, and then people are not positioned to take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. And this is where we're so like uh, honored to have Lisa as an advisor to United States of Care. When, when I first met her, um, I remember, Lisa, you were talking to me about how misinformation and health literacy is one of the social determinants of health that no one really talks about. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's something that could be way more important than understanding if people have access to food or, or just as important, but yet we never talk about it as a social determinant of health. And so, um, you know, like you said, we're kind of living through that right now and, and something that a lot of people don't, don't really recognize. And I'm glad you bring that up because even even when I talk to people about the need to uh, support um, health literacy efforts or efforts to uh, address misinformation, I think people don't see the value in addressing misinformation. They say things like, well, people can look on the Internet. I mean, the Internet is creating this problem Um, or there's so much information out there. Um, it, it can't just be providing information alone. It's not that providing information alone is the solution, but it's definitely a vital, um, it's a vital part of the problem that we have to address because if people don't understand how to take care of themselves or how to understand the information, then they can't take action. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Natalie or, or, or Dr. Lisa, what happens when it's the government that is putting out misinformation, right? Like, so, so there's DC and then there's, you know, governors that I've seen across the country um, and, and their agents that seem to be putting out information and then backtracking later. How, what is, is there an answer to that? You know, I think that this is a, it's a tricky time because the problem with the communication around this pandemic is that a lot of the communication is based on modeling. And people have to understand the limitations of modeling. Modeling is very good for something like the flu. We get the, we've known about the flu for decades. We know about how many people will be infected. We know about how long it's gonna hang around. We know about how many people will be vaccinated and how effective the vaccine is. So if you wanna model and say over the next five years, this is how many flu cases we expect to have. This is how many people, this is a range of 
you know, the number of people that will die. Because we have solid information telling us the assumptions to put into the model. And so that's how models are built. They're built on um, historical information that, is, that creates a best guess about what could happen. So think about that in the context of this pandemic. Mm-hmm. What do we know? We knew, well, we think we know what was happening in China, but even something like the, the total number of cases, that information can never be known. Mm-hmm. How, how frequently the cases were doubling or tripling or increasing exponentially, that varied from country to country. It would be different. It, it was going to be different when it got to the U.S. And so the challenge with relying on models to guess what would happen, I think, is a recipe for creating misinformation or what's perceived as, as um, misinformation, particularly for, from our leaders, our public health leaders, um, political leaders, is because people can take that information and they can manipulate it to say whatever they want um, that suits them. Yeah. So it's and, and I know it frustrates the public. I get a lot of questions. Well, what do you mean? How did how did they change from one million deaths to sixty thousand deaths? And that's the reason. Because or even yeah. Or should we be social distancing or not? Like mm-hmm. I mean, I think that politics plays in, and you know, the concern for the economy is real. Um, but. You know, there's so many messengers that are out there. And so both of you have really um, expressed the commitment of getting information out there and making sure that public health options get to the people that are on the street that don't understand and have the backgrounds that you have so that we can um, take care of ourselves. And so do you have um, recommendations for people listening on where if they were going to go to a website, like what websites <laughs> should they go to? Oh, man. Um, I'll be curious to see what Natalie has to say about this. I, um, I think for, you know, it's, it's hard for people. And this is why I've waded into this, into this area. Um, because mm-hmm. I see myself as a trusted, credible messenger simply because I have the background to look at science. I understand medicine. I understand people. And, and I'm not afraid to say I don't know something or try to find the answer if it isn't there. And so yeah. the challenge with a lot of what we're hearing is that we don't know what the sources are or if it's really been, if the information has really been vetted. And I, I often refer people to CDC website for um, general information, but CDC only will give general information. I mean, as someone who worked at CDC, I understand how CDC operates. It's an agency that provides guidelines, general information, um, information about disease trends. It provides a lot of um, general public health information, but the kinds of things people want to know about how to shift their lives or their, their patterns or their ways to behave, I don't think you can get granular information like that from something like a CDC website. And I also think people, um, they do the best they can. And the one, the other reason my company is called Grapevine Health is because when we ask people where you get information you trust, 
they said they talked to their mom or their grandfather or their friends and family to get information. And I think this is what's happening. And now we have so many experts all of a sudden. Everybody's an expert on coronavirus and pandemics. And if you say something with enough authority, like I've seen in some of these videos on YouTube, why wouldn't someone believe you? Yeah. I was also going to recommend CDC. It's interesting as we've talked to some people and this has not been scientific, but if we talk to people, you know, across the country, and ask them like, where are you getting your news? What's, what are you finding? What are you, what are you turning towards to get the information you need? Um, it's been really interesting and it resonates with me. A lot of people are like, I just can't anymore. It's just too much. It's too scary. Yep. I don't know who to trust. Um, there has a lot of people do trust Dr. Fauci when he's up there um, with the president um, and CDC. But it's just been really interesting to hear. There's been a lot of people that have just said, I can't, I can't read anymore, or I have to do 10 minutes a day, or I just talk to my family about it because it's, um, there's, it's, it's anxiety inducing. Mm-hmm. I, I would add, though, I think part of the, the challenge with listening to data, you know, the projections about modeling is that it sets people up for distrust. And, you know, this notion that we have revised the estimate, the death estimate so drastically um, will lead people to say, well, why should we believe anything you say? There's a huge, there's a lot of daylight between 60,000 cases and a million cases. And I remember Dr. Fauci saying early on that when this is all over, you know, people, if, if things go as they should and we... Uh, mitigate spread and reduce deaths, uh, people will say you overreacted. Mm-hmm. But that's the cost of it. There, that's the cost of reducing um, the impact because you'll never see what could have happened. But I think the distrust around the messaging um, is definitely linked to all the unknowns about how we're coming up with this information and just asking people to believe. Yeah. Is there a scenario in which the United States could have been better prepared? So I don't understand. um, You know, I'm not a scientist. Uh, I see, you know, I'm like, this is, you know, this happened. It showed up. You know, I don't know how pandemics work. You know, is this something where we were hit and now we're bringing experts in? Or is there a scenario in which we could have been better prepared? Oh, yes. Say more. (laughs) I will. Um, (laughs) Let's talk about outbreak 101. When there's an outbreak, let's say it's, um, let's say it's alfalfa sprouts that that are contaminated with E. coli. The health department starts hearing about these unique cases and then they send people into the community these EIS officers usually are people from the health department and they figure out the source. And once they find the source, then they find all the people who could have potentially been impacted by that. And they look at those people and the people connected to them. Or maybe a better example is when you find cases of tuberculosis or or some other kind of respiratory um, infection that's transmissible. You first have to find the people who have it, the cases, and then you isolate them or you put them in quarantine, and then you find out who they've been around, where they've been, and then you find those people 
if there are any infections and you quarantine those people and then so on and so on until you, until you uh, mitigate spread and you stop the spread because you found all the cases. So we didn't do that. And that's basic public health, basic outbreak um, strategy 101. So when, when the first case, and my understanding is the first case in the United States was um, a business traveler actually from, he had been in China, but he was in Washington state. And when we knew about that case, we should have been aggressively conducting contact tracing or looking for his patterns. Where had he been, you know, in the previous weeks before coming to the United States? Where had he been? Where did he go after he got off the plane? I mean, all the people on the plane should have been contacted and tested. And then all of the places he went after that, who did he come in contact with to find the cases? And that's how we could have stopped the spread. So think about all the plane. Where are the planes coming from? They're coming from. They're coming to different places. New York. So we see what's happening in New York. I think the the mitigation that or the public health efforts in New York were far too late, um, and that's why we're seeing the spread. So yes, there could have been um, a, a much faster, a much better response. Um, we, we all know that we didn't have enough testing in the beginning for a variety of reasons. Um, but this, these are, are huge mistakes that are costing us now. Mm-hmm. And, and speaking of testing, I mean, I have, um, been listening, you know, to folks in New York talking about this, um, bidding war for ventilators and masks and, um, you know, I have been personally um, floored and I think I'm one of those people, Natalie, that are like, I can't watch anymore because just thinking about um, the United States not having enough equipment to just do testing um, is, is, is paralyzing for me, much less taking care of people once they get to a state that they need more urgent care. Is that because it was politicized or is it because, you know, probably a combination of, of the, <laughs> the lack of preparation. I think this is a story that will be told um, years from now. And I think there are a lot, uh, there's a lot more information we don't know about. But we do know that CDC, so let me back up. When, when um, China first published um, the gene sequence for this virus and told everybody, I mean, they, and they did it in record time. I think it was in 11 days or something like that, they were able to isolate the virus, look at the whole gene sequence, and then they published it so everybody in the world um, knew what it was and they could make their own if they wanted to. Um, CDC chose to make our own and then it didn't work. And I think we lost time there, but, and and that's, you know, that's human error that happens, but I think the, the, the misstep was not having a plan B and sourcing tests from wherever we could, even if it meant outside the United States, even if it meant um, securing the support of the biotech industry. We have a very robust and healthy biotech industry in the United States. And so there were challenges, you know, bureaucratic challenges at the FDA and so on. And so these are the things that contributed to our inability to roll out testing on the scale we needed uh, to find cases early and begin that public health uh, response I was talking about earlier. 
And if we were to look forward, like are we in um, a better scenario now? Like, you know, okay, there were human errors back then, but are we in a stronger place now to address this? Oh, I don't uh, think so. I think we're definitely in reactionary mode and we generally are. Um, My understanding is there were um, simulation exercises around this exact scenario that happened and we still were caught flat footed. So, no, I don't think we're in a um, we're in a better position now. However, I will say every state will not be like New York City. And that's an opportunity. That's an opportunity to implement the basic public health outbreak strategy I was talking about. So if, if it's, you know, a state, particularly these states that haven't locked down, there's a public health opportunity for them to find the cases aggressively. And if they refuse to lock down and refuse to implement social distancing, at the very least, find test kits somewhere, source them and find the cases and do the contact tracing so that they don't have an escalation in cases. And I think all states really should be doing that now. Mm-hmm. And how do you address the, um, the states that haven't locked down in terms of travel, like domestic travel? Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a little, um, so this is interesting to me because I think what's happening, it, it's all about the optics. Um, and, if they're not seeing a lot of um, spread in their communities, they're thinking, well, this isn't really affecting us. Why, why should we take the risk of destroying our economy when nothing is happening? And actually, I actually, I understand that. But again, if that attitude is not accompanied by an aggressive, I mean, like overly aggressive public health effort, to find cases and ensure what they believe is true, because it's not enough to say, we don't think we have cases. Um, You have to know for sure you don't have cases, but then there also needs to be some sort of um, travel restriction or border control or something to mitigate the the spread and and the, um, the, the transmission of virus. Natalie, can we maybe step back a little bit from um, COVID for a second? It's, it's related, but what, how does politics play into healthcare? You know, we um, at United States of Care have thought about about every 10 years, the nation takes a stab at federal, federal national level reform of our healthcare system. Um, so if you, and this has been for decades, this has happened. And so if you think about in the most immediate decade with the Affordable Care Act, it became something that you, you hung your hat on, if, on whether you were for it or against it. And while it wasn't the first time that healthcare has been politicized, it was a, it's the most recent time that it has been um, intensely simplified and brought to a level of if you're either for it or against it and you'll vote on your party line. Um, we, when we've talked to individuals, this idea that their health and the health of their families is a political football and that there's no positive vision, no way to look forward to what, what could be um, in, the, in a future kind of reform effort that would actually be based on their needs. It's, it's almost like a foreign concept, this idea that healthcare may not be uh, political. 
Um, and so I think there's going to be a time where, and this might, this epidemic might be, might be the moment when we, I'm not going to say that it, healthcare won't be political anymore because we're already starting to see the response to COVID-19 politicized. But this, this may be a time where we realize the, the health of our neighbor and the insurance status. And if they're able to get the care they need um, matters for your own health. Uh, I know Lisa and I have talked about this and she thinks that I'm too optimistic that it's not going to change a lot. But, um, you know, I do think there's a moment for us to talk about as a country. What does it mean for our frontline healthcare workers and nurses to be well equipped? And what does it mean for your neighbor to literally put their lives on the line by working in a grocery store? And what if they don't have insurance? Um, you know, there's, uh, we now have 10 million plus people uninsured um, because they lost their job or possibly uninsured because our, com our country ties uh, insurance to employment. And so it's raising, I think, a lot of questions um, that we have the opportunity to raise a lot of questions about um, what we want our, our country to, to do in terms of access to insurance, access to care. Um, you know, the idea that there are people that don't want to seek treatment right now because they're an undocumented immigrant or they are worried about if insurance will cover their the 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 care they would need if they got COVID-19. I mean, these are questions that people shouldn't have to ask themselves, but are. And so I do think it's a moment to step back and say, what do we want our healthcare system to be? Yeah. And if we and were Lisa to, has different <laughs> Yeah, I want to hear from from Dr. Lisa's differing opinion, but Natalie, if we were to actualize your optimistic vision of really seizing um the moment, are there things that people like what would that require um especially from the everyday person and what what would need to happen in order to fulfill that um vision? I think a lot of it is the work that both of you do. We need to to go into community and talk about what's working and what isn't and not presuppose we have a policy idea that we just need people to support, but understand what's working and what isn't and, and use that as a way to build um, a better vision for healthcare. I mean, look, we have been talking about virtual care and telehealth for a long time, and it was never a possibility. And the nation, and ed including the education system, flipped in two weeks to be able to give people virtual care, um, which is amazing. We need to understand if that's going to increase disparities or increase access to care. I was speaking to a nurse in rural Wisconsin who shared with me when she was able to start working from home, her broadband is, is so poor that they had to decide her kids couldn't do at-home schooling because they could only have one laptop on the internet. And so they chose her job because they needed the income, of course. Um, so while we are able to switch to telehealth, we need to understand where is that working? Where is it not? How is it going to increase um, you know, access to care? And where is it going to worsen um, in inequalities? But we need to do that by understanding what what works for people and what doesn't and not presupposing that we know the answer. And Dr. Lisa, your your vision is less optimistic. <laughs> but what 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 do you think will um come from this? So I always like to say where you stand is where you sit. Um so I share some of Natalie's optimism around um the changes that will will happen as a result of this in the way we deliver care. 
Um, I've been a, a digital um, health and telemedicine supporter for a long time and have actually um, wanted um, to stand up a digital health resource for Medicaid patients. And I still think that's very necessary. Um, I think the disparity, we will see the disparity. Um, I actually am planning to write about this. I'm a Forbes contributor, Forbes health contributor. And so one of my next blogs will be about where are all the people who are not going to the emergency room right now and are they using telehealth? So I interviewed someone from one of our federally qualified health centers and she you know, she said um, a lot of people have phones, but the challenges with bandwidth, um, you know, data access, um, it makes it challenging them for them to do video visits. They're able to talk on the phone fine. Um, but it just again reminded me about even though we do, um, we probably will um, make this shift permanent uh, with telemedicine. Um, but we have a lot of work to do to make sure that everybody can equally access it. Um, so much so that, um, you know, if you know any um, telecommunications providers, maybe we could get some sort of, you know, mass donation to allow people to have access to service and, and smartphones, those who don't have it during this crisis. Because if they're not going in, you know, before this happened, our emergency rooms were flooded with people in heart failure, people who had missed dialysis and needed to be seen or who had an asthma exacerbation, where are they going now? So we need to provide some support for them. Um, but the, the reason, and you know, Natalie's joking a little bit about my skepticism, but I think the, the biggest reason I'm skeptical about the future and how much this will influence what happens is that I think we, as a nation, um, have very short memories. Cool. So I think at this time, you know, in certain pockets, there's some solidarity, but in other, you know, people are saying we're all in this together. But what about that homeless person I was talking about? Or what about the family that can't socially uh, practice social distance, distancing when they live in a, a house with four or five people and one person has to go out to, to work in a supermarket or drive a truck every day? Um, we're already forgetting about those people. And once this passes, I think we will still be staring at these health disparities that we've been talking about for decades. And so I don't think this will be our pivotal moment to address those things because we've had moments like this before. Katrina comes to mind. I mean, there's a glaring, you know, glaring disparity the whole world saw. And now here we are again. So I, I don't know. I'm, I want to be optimistic that this will incite new conversations, but I'm not sure it will. I think the right people have to be at the table. And I'm so glad I'm on this call with Natalie because um, U.S. of Care can be so influential in um, making sure the right people are at the table when we're having conversations about how to address these longstanding intractable um, health disparities. Mm And I imagine that, um, you know, I kind of share your concern, right, of um, folks that aren't going to the doctor. So you have the, the data that came out on who, um, who's being um, fatally impacted by COVID-19. There's uh, information that is very consistent with the, the health disparities that we knew were happening. Those folks that are 
um, out on the front lines now, those folks that had underlying health issues, um, you know, the black community is being um, gravely impacted um, in this moment. And I can't, I can't imagine right now, like for folks that really didn't understand disparities, here's a moment for them to really understand how um, those disparities play out. Even talking about school and education, Natalie, you're homeschooling your kids right now. I'm homeschooling my kids. And um, I've been in conversations with people that don't have pencils and paper at home, right? They don't have a table to write on. And we're talking about broadband and they don't have some of the basic essential sort of furnishings and, and tools for education like paper and pen because they they didn't have it. That's not where they're, they're spending their resources. And I think it will exacerbate in many ways the disparities that we see. You know, I hope in, in our work in philanthropy that it, it feels like there's a perfect place for philanthropy to be around both supporting, um, you know, Dr. Lisa, maybe it is the, the messaging that goes out. It's, you know, the platform. I hear broadband. I mean, I hear a number of things in my listening to you both on things that we can do. Um, are there other things that you think specifically for philanthropy, because that's where I'm sitting right now that, you know, in ways that we can uh, help, because I would hate to see the country go backwards or to deepen the disparities that are already so deep. Well, I think um, I've been, I've been deeply interested in philanthropy for a long time because I'm fascinated by how difficult it is to get money uh, from from places for things that seem so obvious. Um, and having started a nonprofit in the past, I, I just, I don't understand why it's so difficult when we talk about the need to address health disparities, um, and now where everybody's talking, before COVID, we were talking about social determinants of health. How do we provide the services and the supports that people need in the way they need them, but the money is not flowing to match the need? It's so interesting to me. Um, the funders seem to be much more interested in metrics and measurement and ensuring that the organizations are equipped to, um, you know, to to do what they say they'll do in their applications. But the the challenge is that I have so many thoughts about this, but I think the challenge is that the foundations, particularly, um, need to be more flexible at a time like this and more nimble to meet the needs that are in front of them. And I'm not just talking about giving money to food banks, but some of the things we're talking about, how can we mobilize uh, resources so that people can educate their kids at home, or they can access a smartphone so that they can have a video visit with a doctor? Or what about remote monitoring? So someone with congestive heart failure, for instance, maybe they need access to a pulse oximeter or some way to measure whether or not they're putting on weight because they have fluid retention. There are are so many technologies out there that could help support this sort of, um, you know, clinical, um, the diagnostic needs for these patients. But to try and get money for things like that from foundations 
uh, in an urgent situation, I think would be really challenging because it's not, uh, it's not how they're structured. The bureaucracy prevents uh, them from helping people in the way they need to. And the last thing I'll say is I've, I've tried to get money from a lot of these organizations to address the misinformation or to focus on health literacy. And because it doesn't seem like a sexy research project or it doesn't have um, sort of the policy implications or something they could actually use to move a policy um, around health reform or SNAP benefits or something like that, then it's not seen as something uh, in their wheelhouse. And so I've turned my attention to things like raising money from friends and family. I launched a GoFundMe campaign because I got tired of trying to get money at this critical time to address misinformation, I, I, I got tired. And so um, I'm having some success there, but I, I just think that my message to funders is put your money where your mouth is. If you say you want to help people, you have to listen to what the real needs are and put some of your requirements and some of your notions aside about how the money should be spent and let the money float to help people on the ground. Yeah, and I, I echo what Dr. Lisa's saying. And, you know, this is a moment for foundations and philanthropists to stand up and practice altruism and strengthen communities where we all pivoted and quickly, you know, we focused, we turned the United States of Care to focus completely on COVID for the time being. And Dr. Lisa is talking about what can she do in the immediate moment to help, you know, her community and other communities really get through this really extremely trying time we never have. And, um, you know, that doesn't always mean a perfect work plan and a perfect budget, but it does mean that there are a lot of things that need to happen now um, and need to continue to happen to continue to build a, a healthcare system, an education system that meets people where they are. You know, earlier we were talking about having the right people at the table. Well, if being at the table means you can't be at the table because you can't take off work or you can't have someone watch your kids so you can come, you know, be at the table. You know, we're really interested in United States of Care is how can we let people afford to be at the table? How can we, but that's not traditionally funded. How can we, you know, make sure that communities are, are able to gather and talk about what's working and not, but that means we need to, to be able to resource that. Um, to understand, like Lisa said, what's what's going on and, and how to use that to inform the work to do. And so philanthropists and, and foundations, I think, have a big, a big role that they should be filling right now, which is getting money out urgently and um, taking, you know, jumping off the ledge like all of us are and trying to trying to do the right thing. So, yeah, I think my the risk tolerance is the risk tolerance um is um not high enough because i find a, a lot of funders will turn to known entities or known you know known organizations who've always had the infrastructure and the capacity to get money to write grants to say the right things to create the work plans as Nally was saying but they don't necessarily have the emotional intelligence or the connection to the people who need um, the support, or even to the to the community to invite their voice into the process, that's who needs to be funded right now. Mm -hmm. 
I um so I hear a couple of things that I I want to point out and just make sure that I'm hearing it um in the right way or, or or putting it out because I do think that philanthropy at least in Minnesota is responding and getting more money out the door and being more nimble in process. What I can say is that those dollars are going a lot to the basic needs, the food, you know, the worker, the gig workers, the healthcare and that um, from one point of view, we are being flexible in that what used to take six months is taking one week, right? Wow, like, like wonderful. an application, you know, we've gotten over a million dollars out the door within three weeks, like 270 proposals we've read, right? That's incredible. But to your point that they've gone to um, organizations that we have been uh, familiar with for the most part. Um, folks that are comfortable enough at least to fill out this very low barrier, right? I'll speak for just the Minneapolis Foundation. But what I also hear around the nimbleness that I want to make sure that I point out and that I heard it correctly and have you reinforce it if I'm, if I heard it right, is that, um, a piece of nimbleness also means being open to ideas that you haven't heard and to fund people that maybe you haven't been in relationship with in the past, because it's one thing to be nimble within the known. It's something else to be nimble within the unknown. And that in a situation like this, it actually will require innovations and new approaches that we have to be nimble enough, not just in our process, but nimble enough in our thinking, nimble enough in our expectations, nimble enough in our sort of, um, our, our risk sort of scenarios um, to be able to allow some new um, strategies to come into play. The Minneapolis Foundation is a leader as, as far as foundations and getting money out and putting it in the community. And it's why it was so great to be on this today. And um, I, I, I'm genuinely asking this. Do you know if that has been similar in other states and other foundations across the country? I know that it's really consistent here, um, yeah. even with, with my counterparts. I have talked to some of my colleagues in other states where um, I don't think that that is the case. Um, I do think that there are some places that are gathering the large um, foundations in their states. And I, what I would say is that they're creating kind of a count of an alternate sort of bureaucracy. Um, that um, is slowing, slowing it down. And even with the slowdown, I think they're being quicker than usual. Um, so, you know, I'm not, I'm not an expert there. Um, but I can say that here in our state, it's been really wonderful to see. Um, but I do think that that innovation, um, does matter. And, you know, I came from the other side of the work, right? I ran a nonprofit. Um, you mentioned a food desert earlier when I was leading. Um, I worked really hard with, with my partner, who's now um, CEO, Adair Mosley at Pillsbury United Communities to open up North Market, um, which was in the middle of either a food swamp or a food desert, whatever you want to call it. Um, but, you know, I will often say that if we would have wrote the proposal to open up that grocery store, it wouldn't be open now. Right. Like the you know, I'm like my best ideas probably went into like the virtual trash can. And that I had to really um, prove prove a lot to move those things. And those early investors were our corporate partners. And certainly philanthropy came in. So, you know, I don't want to discount that. But um, 
you know, it, the support from the onset matters a lot. And um, so I'm both trying to say, I understand, me personally understand kind of the angst of what you're describing, Dr. Lisa. And, um, you know, as we close, I think you gave, you know, number one, I think what you're talking about is both flexibility and process, but also being flexible to letting new people in with new ideas that perhaps you don't know of, right? So if you're moving your own theory of change, with very limited understanding of either an issue or limited connection to community, you're not in the right position to have the impact that you could have if you invited people in that had both expertise and the relationship. Very well said. Amen. Amen. Thank you both. Is there anything that you want to say that I didn't ask or we didn't cover? I just want to say you have some kind of black girl magic. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. You got it too. I can feel it through here. I saw your picture today. I'm like, look at those nipples. I want to talk to her. <laughs> all that, all those brains, all that talent and, um, you know, that passion for a community. I am just, you know, I'm trying to use this platform that I have while I have it to really challenge um, philanthropy, right? To challenge the Minneapolis Foundation to say, you know, we are collectively very smart, but people on the ground are smarter than us. You know, and even with the grocery store that um, I was instrumental in, it was right down the street from where I live now in North Minneapolis, which is historically a black neighborhood. And in my listening sessions, I heard things that I wouldn't have thought I would have heard. Right. Where I'm like, you know, what do you want to see? You know, what type of classes do you want to have in the store? People are like, we want composting classes. And I'm like, composting classes. Like, I would have never thought that on my own. And so I often say to people, like, I'm fifth generation in this neighborhood. And when I ask people questions, I learn something new. Like, I mean, I depend on those voices to inform me. And if I'm this close, I'm this proximate, I live in the same zip code that we're trying to address. And I still feel like my orientation has to be to connection and listening. um, Then I don't understand how you can't have that orientation. Right. And um, so I appreciate you being part of my own personal sort of kind of passion of bringing in voices and and connecting it to, to policy, to action, to improvement. So I appreciate it. I hope we stay in touch if you need anything. Dr. Lisa, I'm going to be looking at all my, my dollars to see if we have any campaign dollars for you. Um, well, I want to take Dr. Lisa on the street, on the road to different cities, especially now to talk to people and see what's on their mind um, about, you know, this pandemic and lessons we've learned. So maybe um, I should include a stop in Minnesota. Yeah, sure. Please come to Minnesota. And, <laughs> uh, you know, I was sharing with Natalie. I have a son. The car dealership he works for is still open. Um, hmm. yeah. Essential service. I'm going to interview yeah, you can talk with him. I have other folks that um, are around me that are still working. And especially, I think, in that 20-something population, because that's, that's a you know, I'm watching them with their card parties and everything else on Instagram and stuff. And I'm like, mm-hmm. young people, come on. So, but both of you, you know, if there's a way that I can be helpful, please let me know. And um, if I have questions, I'll reach out to you. And for sure, stop here, Dr. Lisa, for sure. Yeah. And thank you so much for your leadership and all of this. It's uh, you're a legend that I've heard a lot about. So I really appreciate you bringing us together and, and all of your leadership. So thank you. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. I really appreciate the invitation to be here. And I look forward to connecting with you. 
Sounds good. Thank God it's Friday and enjoy your weekend. To listen to more episodes and learn about upcoming events, please visit conversationswithshonda.org. You can follow Shonda on Twitter at Shonda S. Baker. This is Sue Pak Keenitz from the Minneapolis Foundation. Thank you for listening to Conversations with Shonda.